All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Madera. Madera? Madera. Yeah, no trill. No trill. Madera. Just a, yeah. De Madera. Wood. Wood. Great yes. job. The, of wood. <laughs> uh, made from wood. Uh, yeah, that's our, what is that, our Spanish word of the it day. It is our Spanish word of the day. Yeah, she's writing Spanish words of the day on the refrigerator. Um, there's no paper or whiteboard there. She's just writing it on the refrigerator. You know that's not accurate. I would never do that. We're, we're in the process of uh, taking a Spanish class. And I think it's important that we continue to uh, try to better our vocab mm-hmm. outside of the class. So yes. now we have a Spanish word of the day, and today's word is madera. <laughs> Maybe you can you could learn Spanish along with us. <laughs> now you know madera. Madera. Hey, this has got to be the uh, iTunes uh, review of the week. Okay. <laughs> Maybe we should do that. Maybe we pick out uh, our favorite iTunes review and, and read it from time to time. Okay. Uh, this this came in from Princess Feather on iTunes. I'm a listener of Box of Oddities. While strolling through a cemetery, I noticed a herd of deer. As I'm watching the majesty of nature, also taking part in this serene location, I noticed a doe lift her tail. Are you going to do it? Are you going to poo? I whisper to the doe. As the turdlets drop from her behind, I think to myself, Cat and Jethro would love to be here right now. (laughs) If any of that story was too weird for you to handle, this is definitely not the podcast for you. Five stars. Thanks, Princess Feather. That's hilarious. That's amazing. You know we want to watch deer poop in a cemetery. (laughs) Who doesn't? We're not stupid. Oh, man. Madera. Wonderful. Madera. Madera. Uh, Anyway, you go first. Oh, okay. Um, I want to start off with a uh, trigger warning. There will come a point in the story where things get really rough. Okay. Now, right before we get to that point, I'm going to give you a secondary trigger warning. And I'm going to say, now this is the point, blah, 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 blah. Um, So just know that uh, overall, the story's rough, but there's one specific part that's super rough. So we'll talk about that when we get there and okay so there's your head your heads up we're going to talk today about the only catholic priest executed in america 
Oh, wow. Hans Schmidt was an unusual child. He was born in the German town of Aschaffenburg in 1881. He had a Protestant father and a Catholic mother, and dad was very abusive toward the family. And even from a young age, uh, his family could see that Schmidt was a little different. He was obsessed with blood and gore as well as religion. Hmm. And his parents recounted a story from his childhood where they found him with the decapitated heads of two geese in his pockets. Um, he Whoa. Really, he had a problem, and his love of blood and gore would drive him to visit the local slaughterhouse nearly every day mm. and watch the process mm. of the animals being... Process. Yeah. This sounds very Jeffrey Dahmer. Mm, it's very weird. Because he used to collect roadkill and mm. take it home and make models out of the bones and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He was also obsessed, as I said, with religion and the rituals associated with religion. As he got older, he became more and more obsessed, and he also became very promiscuous. Later in his seminary studies, Schmidt was arrested by the Bavarian police wow. and charged with forging diplomas for failing students. So he was just all around involved balls. in some weird shit. The public prosecutor wanted to send young Schmidt to prison, but his father hired a lawyer who arranged for the charges to be dropped for reasons of mental defect. Mm. In 1904, Schmidt was ordained, and uh, once in the church, his behavior worsened, and there were accusations of the rape of altar boys. When this became known to the church, unfortunately, rather than dealing with it in an appropriate manner, they just moved him to a different community. And this happened several times during his career in the church in Germany. One source suggested that a local woman who lived near the Schmitz was murdered and that her body was found near to where the young Schmidt would play. And that led to a situation where no parish in Germany would take him. Um, this pushed him to immigrate to America. So Schmidt arrived in the U.S. in 1908 and was assigned to the St. John's Parish in Kentucky. He had arguments with the minister, and that once again led him to being relocated to St. Boniface in New York City. The reverend there, John Braun, uh, said that Schmidt refused to conform to Catholicism's rules and that he would alter the church's ritual prayers to suit his eccentricities, and his ceremonies were often a mess of scriptural error. Now, he came to the United States after no more churches in Germany would have him. Mm -hmm. Did the churches in the United States, were they aware of his background? Unclear. Okay. Unclear. But we do know that after multiple problems in several churches here, he was again just moved around. Wow. Reverend Braun had also recently hired a young Austrian housekeeper named Anna Amuller, and she'd been hired to keep shop. Schmidt and Anna engaged in a sexual relationship, and Schmidt would later claim that God had told him he had to love Anna. The two developed a sexual relationship, and at the same time, Schmidt was also having a relationship with a New York dentist named Ernest Merritt, with whom he operated a counterfeiting ring. Well, so he, he had his hands in a lot of things. That's exactly the phrase I was going to say, and I thought that turn of phrase might not be good. I'm sorry. That's all right. Okay. All around, not great. 
not a great situation, not a great guy. And it uh, seems to be getting worse uh, as he goes along. There are, again, many instances where people just are turning a blind eye mm-hmm. to things that they know are going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not great. So Schmidt is transferred again to a church in Harlem, and Schmidt and Anna continued their secret sexual relationship. Um, it was later revealed that they were, quote unquote, married in a secret ceremony, which he performed himself, which <laughs> there's a lot wrong with that. Yeah. 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 Some sources say that Anna discovered that she was pregnant and that Schmidt paid for uh, her to go back to Austria for an abortion. Wow. Now, some say that the abortion didn't happen, that uh, she found out she was pregnant and that was that. But either way. This was in the what, the, the 20s, the 30s? Well, he moved to the States in 1908. Oh, okay. So teens-ish. I can't imagine what abortions during that time period must have been like, I mean, I can imagine, but it must have been just horrible, horrible, horrific. Yeah. So the, uh, okay. So their illegitimate ceremony, their marriage, quote unquote, happened in 1913. Okay. And of course, Catholic priests are banned from getting married, let alone having multiple sexual affairs. Let alone uh, performing the ceremony oneself. Right. Let alone consorting with sex workers. And uh, molesting altar boys. Yes. All of this, yeah. not good. Mueller described Schmidt to a friend as wholly crazy. And he had pledged to move to the country and start his own religion. Uh, unfortunately, it was around this time also that Schmidt began hearing commands from God proclaiming that he needed to sacrifice Anna. Uh-oh. So, as I said, Anna found out that she was pregnant. Um, and according to Schmidt, this voice uh, kept getting louder and louder until 1913. Uh, in the month of September, he decided that he was going to fulfill the word of God. So he went to the apartment uh, where they had uh, that they had rented together uh, as a married couple. And this is where you should put your earmuffs on if you're not wanting to hear what happens next. And normally I like to go along with a story and be like, papa, right? This is amazing and, and it's shocking yeah, yeah. and you're not going to like this. And can you even believe it? But this is rough enough where I think there are some people who just don't need to hear what happens next. All right. Prepare your pork taint. It's going to last approximately 30 seconds. Okay. Here we go. Schmidt slashed Anna's throat while she slept. He drank her blood, and raped her while she bled to death. Oh, my God. He then sawed her body in half. He wrapped each section uh, of her body in newspaper from August 31st and put her lower body in one of her pillowcases that had a monogrammed A on it. And I don't know why particularly, but that detail, like, just sends me overboard. Anyway, uh, he attached rocks to the parts of her body and dumped them in the Hudson River. (sighs) Okay, so that's, that's that. Ooh, you weren't kidding. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. three days later, uh, children on the New Jersey side of Hudson came across the upper torso of, of a woman. Of course it was kids that yeah. found it. Yeah. And uh, later, uh, three miles downriver, the lower section was found. An autopsy of the body parts told police that they were investigating the murder of a woman under 30, around 5'4", between 130 pounds. 
They used the tag on the pillowcase that was still attached to part of her body, uh, tracing back to the factory. Uh, and where those pillowcases were sold was an exclusive shop. That, that's pretty good policing for the day. For the for the tens? Yeah, for the yeah, tens. Absolutely. Um, so using that information, they went to the shop and the shopkeeper was able to tell them, uh, you know, how many of those sets they had sold. Mm -hmm. And one of them uh, they had sold and delivered. So that was really handy because they had an address. So they followed the uh, information that they had and they had the address of the apartment that Schmidt and Anna were were using. So the superintendent revealed that the apartment was occupied by a married couple. The husband was described as a man with a heavy German accent who who had given his name as H. Schmidt. When they went into the apartment, they found that the floor had been recently scrubbed, but there were large amounts of dried blood found on the walls. There was also a bloodstained knife on one of the kitchen shelves. In the dresser, they found men's clothing with the name A. Van Dyke sewn into the lining, as well as letters in both German and English addressed to Hans Schmidt. So Hans Schmidt had been using all kinds of different names to get away with all kinds of different games. Mm -hmm. So using the information that was in the letters, they discovered that Hans Schmidt was working at this new church. So they went there and they found him sleeping. And they woke him up and after seeing the inspector there, Schmidt cracked and declared, I killed her. I killed her because I loved her and sacrifices should be consummated in blood. He seems nice. Yeah. Schmidt's defense team tried to convince the jury that he was not a sane man, which I kind of can Mm -hmm. get on board with. Mm -hmm. But the question was whether or not he knew what he was doing was wrong. I think the question really is this man was declared insane years before and he still got into the church. How did that happen? Over and over again. Over and over again. Over and over again. So the first trial was a hung jury. So they had a second trial, February 5th, 1914. And uh, the jury was not fooled as easily this time. After three hours of deliberation, a verdict was reached and Schmidt was to be put to death by electric chair. So February 18, 1916 at Sing Sing Prison in New York, uh, that put an end to Hans Schmidt, and to this day, Schmidt is the only Roman Catholic priest to have received the death penalty in the United States. Wow. Wow. Well, if ever there was one that deserved it, it would be uh, him. My God. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's horrifying. Unreal. And uh, a a terrible example of how sometimes, you know, the system doesn't work. And Mm -hmm. yes, this was many, many years ago, but we still see this happen from time to time where people slip through the cracks. Uh, People that uh, should not be given certain positions are given certain positions, even though clearly they they're incapable of doing it or they suffer from some sort of um, mental illness that would preclude them from being in this position. It's a scary thing. Yeah. Sorry about that. Are you um, okay? Yeah. yeah. All right. I yeah. just, it, uh, mm, you know, it's uh, frustrating to see, you know, that kind of story and know that, you know, sometimes shit like that still goes on. Yeah. You know, the thing is, this is weird because that was a hundred years ago. Mm. Plus, 
it's easy for me anyway, in my mind to go, all oh, I was a hundred years ago. Yeah. You know, if it had happened like last week, I'd be far more horrified. Why is that? Consider that the Boston Globe's incredible investigation that led to, you know, the Catholic Church's uh, repeated instances mm. of mm. just moving priests around. Again, similar situation. That was not that long ago. That's true. This was, uh, wow, just yeah. so, so violent. So violent. Yeah. So I got most of this information from All That's Interesting, uh, Medium.com, Wikipedia, of course, and Murderpedia. That's Hans Schmidt, the only Catholic priest to ever be put to death in the U.S. And now, that thing in the middle. A man by the name of J.G. Tierney was the very first person to die while constructing the Hoover Dam. The last person to die during the dam's construction not only happened 13 years later to the day, but was also his son Patrick. So what have we learned lately? One, if you see a band of sketchy hobos, hide your damn chickens. Two, Cat once bit her lips so hard she drew blood because she was mad about some rain. And three, Jethro wants to be cremated and have his ashes shot out of some guy's asshole. Is this the best podcast in the world or what? This is The Box of Oddities. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. 
Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for The Box of Oddities is provided in part by listeners like you on Patreon. You can support us too. Go to patreon.com slash box of oddities. Thank you. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This email comes from Suzanne from Tasmania, Devonport, Tasmania. And this came in on February 5th. The subject matter says catapulted dead bodies, all (laughs) in capitals. Used big yelling caps to hopefully get your attention. I've recently converted my boyfriend to your podcast, although... He should have found it first since he shared this topic with me and I'm about to ask you about. Now, I'm binging from the beginning, so forgive me if you've already covered this. My boyfriend told me about a documentary he watched which talked about the use of dead bodies on the catapult during the plague. Ooh. Totally falls straight from the box of oddities, right? Yeah. It's true. Tell me, oh freak leaders, that this is true. Love the bizarreness of your podcast and the beautiful chemistry you guys obviously share. Fly it high and proud from Suzanne. And again, that was on the 5th. On the 6th, she writes back, subject matter, what? (laughs) Okay, you guys, spookiness. I emailed you when? Yesterday? About the use of bodies on catapults. Tonight, I listened to the next episode of The Box of Oddities in my queue pre-bed as i always do boom there you are talking about it Mm. psychotic no wait psychic maybe either ors love your work fly my freak flag all the way from tasmania um that is one of the best examples of the box of oddities that's wonderful and boy i tell you it is happening more and more i think we probably get five or ten emails a day just about box of oddity effects i would i would agree with that it's it's nuts and um we frequently will have people like exactly like that situation where they reach out because of something and then days later reach out again and say whoa what was the arthur conan doyle one? Oh yeah um someone wrote in saying that as I started telling the tale of uh, the amazing, incredible, shocking life of Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, They were driving past the street that he used to live on. That's crazy. Yes. All right. This is crazy, too. And because your topic was kind of dark. Kind of. This probably should have been more lighthearted. But since I had no idea what you were going to do, buckle up, bitches. (laughs) Great. Great. This is a true story. The day was February 13th, 1936, in the city of Catanzaro, Italy. A group of local children were playing along a riverbank, and suddenly one of them called out to their friends to come quickly. Oh man, did they find a torso? There, sprawled on the bank of the rocky riverbed below the bridge, was the tattered body of a local man whose oh, name man. was Giuseppe Veraldi. He was better known to the locals as Pepe. Now, the body was pretty badly mangled because the fall from the bridge was about 30 feet, and the water in the river was extremely low at this point, this time of year. And it appeared as though Giuseppe was battered on the rocks of the shallow river and then drowned and was washed ashore. Okay. The children rushed home and told their parents, who then alerted law enforcement. The police arrived at the scene to collect the remains of Giuseppe and take them to the morgue. Mm Mm-hmm. 
an investigation ensued. But since there was no foul play suspected, it was concluded that Giuseppe Veraldi, or Pepe, if you will, for whatever reason had chosen to end his life on that bridge in February of 1936 by leaping into the shallow, rocky water below. Mm. Now, Pepe's family couldn't believe that he had killed himself. They claimed he was not suicidal. He was a very happy man. In fact, he had recently met the love of his life, a girl that he had deeply fallen in love with. So the family said this had to be a murder, not a suicide. He just did not fit the profile. The police, however, did not change their position. There just wasn't any evidence that pointed to foul play. Right. The case was closed. It was declared a suicide. But that didn't end the rumors and the gossip around the uh, around the village. And even in the newspaper, there mm. was speculation that there was something more to this than just uh, a man jumping off a bridge. This went on for months. But then the story slowly started to fade away. Three long years would go by. And then in January of 1939, things got weird. A local teenager by the name of Maria Tallarico was walking home from school across the very same bridge that Giuseppe had met his fate under. Maria lived close to the bridge and crossed it on a daily basis. But this time, something happened. Something came over her. She felt an uncontrollable urge to walk over to the edge of the bridge and look off the edge. This happened to be the exact same spot that Giuseppe had fallen from the bridge. She then had an urge to go down to the riverbank. She wandered down to the very spot that Giuseppe was found. Mm -hmm. Now, Maria didn't know Giuseppe. Three years had gone by. She wasn't privy to the knowledge as to where the body was found exactly. But when she got to that spot where Veraldi had been found, she became extremely dizzy, lightheaded, and crumpled to the ground. She lay there for nearly an hour before a concerned passerby noticed her lying on the bank. Now, the passerby thought that she too maybe had fallen from the bridge. He rushed to the riverbank, and with the help of another concerned passerby, they carried her to her nearby home. Maria slept for some time after that. They called a doctor. Mm -hmm. The doctor came. He couldn't find anything wrong with her. There There were no physical signs of trauma. Everything seemed to be normal. He said, let's just let her sleep. And things did seem normal. At least until she woke up. And then things got very strange. Oh, no. Very strange indeed. Was she possessed by Giuseppe? Slowly, Maria regained consciousness. She sat up in her bed with this confused look on her face. She she didn't seem to recognize where she was or her family that surrounded her. (gasps) Her family rushed to her bedside and they were alarmed when Maria began to speak because she spoke in a low, rumbling male voice. Like Pepe? Yes. This was clearly not the voice of Maria. She claimed that her name was Pepe. No! In fact, she claimed her full name was Giuseppe Veraldi. The voice of Giuseppe seemed very confused and agitated, and he began requesting to see his mother. His mother lived across the village, so they sent some neighbors over to get Giuseppe's mom. With the neighbors dispatched to get Pepe's mother, Maria then asked for a pack of cigarettes and a bottle of wine and a deck of playing cards. I mean, this sounds like my kind of guy. (laughs) This was not anything like Maria at all. She was a young girl, maybe 16. Uh, Maria didn't drink. I mean, those are all things that I would have been into at 16. Sure, sure. Like playing cribbage. Yeah, right. (laughs) Smoking a pack of Marbreds. Drinking some Boone's Farm. (laughs) 
Maria didn't drink. She didn't smoke. And by all claims, uh, her family said she was a, quote, virtuous girl. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> when the neighbors arrived at Giuseppe's mom's house, the house of Caterina Veraldi, Caterina was understandably a bit skeptical of the story. Sure. But nonetheless, she went to Maria's bedside. When she arrived, Maria became very excited to see her. Her mother thought initially that she was being pranked and uh, turned to leave, but then Maria spoke in that low male voice, Mama, I need you. Oh, God. No, I don't like that at all. Katerina recognized the sound of her son's voice and slowly turned back to the bed. At this point, Pepe, or Giuseppe, if you will, as Maria, became very somber and told his mother he did not kill himself, but in fact he had been murdered in cold blood by four of his best friends. He said that he had been beaten and thrown from the bridge to his death three years earlier. At this point, Maria became hysterical and started running around the house. She ran out the door, across the street, down the hill to the bridge, the exact spot where Giuseppe's body had been found three years earlier. Once she reached the spot, she again passed out, fell to the ground, and landed in the exact same position it was said that Giuseppe's body had been found. The group of people in the house, the family members and uh, Giuseppe's mom, all followed her. When they got to the spot where Maria was lying, Giuseppe's mom implored her son to stop tormenting this young girl. A few minutes later, Maria woke up. She was her old self. Apparently, the spirit of Pepe had left her, and she had, interestingly, no memory of anything that transpired. She said the last thing that she remembered, she was walking home across the bridge just she, like she did every day. Got it. Everyone that was there was understandably a bit confused. <laughs> yeah. They told police what had happened and that uh, there were four people that they should investigate. They didn't have names. So clearly, the police, they weren't going to prosecute anybody. They, they're not going to take the word of a ghost. They, <laughs> they didn't believe any of this, understandably. The police did not reopen the case. Nothing changed. However, Pepe Giuseppe Veraldi's mother was convinced that she had really been talking to her son from sure. beyond the grave. And she believed what he claimed and that he had been murdered. She was convinced this was true, but nothing came of it. But that, my friend, is not the end of the story. Oh, okay. <laughs> Nine long years would pass. And then one day, Giuseppe's mother went out to get the mail from the mailbox. In the mailbox was a letter written by an old friend of Giuseppe's. His name was Luigi Toto Marchetti. Okay. Marchetti had moved to Argentina shortly after Pepe's mysterious death. She thought it was weird that she was getting this letter from this guy that she kind of vaguely remembered as one of her son's friends from 15 years ago or right. something. But what was even more strange was what the letter said. In the letter, Marchetti claimed that he was guilty of murdering Giuseppe <gasps> and that guilt had gotten the better of him. He outlined a full confession to killing Veraldi, telling the story of how he and three other friends murdered Giuseppe. It turns out that Marchetti was jealous of Pepe's girlfriend, and he fell into a jealous rage over the woman, and he beat Giuseppe to death with an iron crowbar. He then got the help of three friends to dispose of the body. They threw him off the bridge. This was just as Maria had said. Four of Giuseppe's friends had killed him and thrown him off the bridge. Now, it turns out that Marchetti had recently died. He had written this confession long before 
and it was found among his things with specific instructions to mail it to Katerina Giuseppe's mother in the event of his death. He also willed all of his money and belongings to her as, I guess, some sort of reparation for his crime. Uh Uh-huh. Maria went on to live the rest of her life without any more weird incidences happening. Apparently, the ghost of Giuseppe was satisfied with that. Uh, Maria was never tormented any further, and Giuseppe's mom never heard from him again. Now, most of this can be documented in the news. Witnesses, several of them, all say they saw the spirit of Giuseppe possess Maria, and they verified the facts that he gave. How did Maria know the exact spot where the body was found. She didn't even know this guy. It could be maybe because she lived close by, she oversaw it. Was it some sort of a premonition? Was it a lucky guess? Did uh, Veraldi's spirit actually possess this girl in order to name his murderers? We really don't know. But it is really strange that witnesses do confirm that she was found on the riverbank, Mm -hmm. that when she woke up, she spoke in this deep voice. It sounds like blood sugar to me. A little glucose issue. She needs to drink the juice, Shelby. Drink the juice. That she claimed that four people murdered him, four friends, and then this letter shows up years later. The police took that information. They located three other men who confessed to being part of this murder. Oh, wow. And they were convicted and they did serve time. Obviously, uh, Toto was dead, so they couldn't do anything about that. Right. I got my information from Mysterious Universe. Cool, interesting stuff. Giuseppe Pepe Veraldi, the ghost that solved his own murder. Wow. That was very interesting, but also kind of dark. It was kind of dark. Yeah. Probably not the feel-good story that would have helped counterbalance your story. Yeah, I feel like maybe we uh, <laughs> some some dog snortles are in order. Yeah, where are the boys? They're Upstairs not down. sleeping on the couch. You want to go get them? And... Yeah, okay. Okay. We'll... Okay. Hold up. Yes! You got Haggis Banjo didn't come down. <laughs> Look at his tail. Look at his tail. Oh, my Hi. goodness. Come here, Haggis. Say hello. Got to give us some snortles make everybody feel better. That was more of a snuffle than a snortle, but we'll take it. Thanks, Haggis. Thank you, Haggis. Thank you, handsome boy. And while she's playing with the dog, I'll take this opportunity to thank you, those who uh, are supporting us on Patreon. Um, If uh, you would like to support us on Patreon, you get a lot of great stuff. You can get uh, episodes ad-free. You can get them a day early. You get bonus episodes. Uh, If you are, depending upon the level of support, you can get our home phone number. So much more. Uh, Go to Patreon. Check it out. Box of Oddities. Patreon. Um, Oh, here's Banjo. Yep, there's a there's a banjo snortle, and we appreciate all the support that you guys uh, give us, especially as we are putting together ideas for a fall tour. Uh, that support will really help us pull it together. Two emails requested Seattle this morning. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I would love to go to Seattle. Thanks a lot, you guys, for hanging out with us. We will see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True. 
That is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Two. Cat once bit her lips so hard she drew blood because she was mad about some rain. And three. Jethro wants to be cremated. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we can do this. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.